Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I'm Aryan, your host for this episode. And I'm Ishwarya. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our YouTube channel, the Desi Crime channel and subscribe. It's free. See, we're not even asking for your money. We have new videos out now. All the cases on our podcast that you loved and some that are not even out on the podcast are now available on YouTube. So go subscribe to the Desi Crime YouTube channel. We'd like to thank our newest patrons Grishma Nair and Jonathan Reeman. Thank you for all the contributions you make in sustaining this podcast. And I'm making this video because it could be the last video I make. Yeah. Pretty soon I'm going to be leaving somehow. And I'm not so sure of the outcome, but I'm 99% positive it will work. And if it doesn't, then this video can help me because all my father cares about is his reputation. He will kill people to protect his own reputation. He, he, he only cares about himself and his ego. So this video could save my life. And if you are watching this video, it's not such a good thing. Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. Latifa was on board a 100-feet yacht Nostromo. The ship had set sail from Muscat in Oman on February 24, 2018. The objective was to transport Princess Latifa and her friend Tina to the shores of Goa, a coastal town in India. But although the seafaring voyage was meant to last a few weeks, Latifa's journey had started long before. In fact, decades before. This was merely the final leg of a lifelong plot to escape her father's fangs. What was this, quote, very, very bad situation that Latifa had found herself in? And did Latifa manage to escape or did her father's clasp finally catch up with her? Find out in part two of Latifa, the missing princess of Dubai. So Ashwara, a couple of episodes ago, we asked you amazing listeners to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review telling us why you love Desi Crime. We promise that the best five reviews will be shared on our Instagram story and they will be. We're still looking for more reviews. So if you have an Apple device at your disposal, I urge you to take just two minutes. That's not a lot of time. Well, it depends on who you ask and go leave a review. It honestly means a lot to us as young creators, but also the algorithm gods smile upon you. And I don't know, it might seem to you guys as though we get so many reviews, so we don't necessarily maybe read all of them, we don't really pay attention to them, but actually the reviews that we get are 
probably the most heartwarming part of doing this when we go and see what you guys like sometimes even the things you guys disliked but really constructively put forward and the suggestions you make everything mm-hmm. just means a lot to us but ashwara you know i'm pleasantly surprised by our apple listeners and kind of disappointed in our spotify listeners really why is that yeah to all of you listening to this episode on spotify right now even though you can't leave a review you can rate us five stars it literally takes 5 seconds that's not a lot of time well again kind of depends on who you ask but just <laughs> go to desi crimes homepage and in the top left corner on spotify you can rate us please one up your bougie apple podcast brethren even though we are one big happy desi family yes we are and speaking of big desi families we continue the story of one such family the difference is it is far from a happy family we are talking about the royal family of dubai and in specific the fraught dynamic between sheikh mohammed rashid al maktoum and his daughter sheikha latifa Ashwara, can you just reacquaint our listeners with where we left off? All right. So, from what I remember, Sheikha Latifa is an Emirati princess. She's the daughter of Dubai's ruler who also happens to be UAE's prime minister, who also happens to be a billionaire, who also <laughs> happens to own a Mercedes G-Wagon with the number plate 1. Am I missing anything, Aran? <laughs> no, no, you're you're absolutely on point. See, he's Richie Rich if Richie Rich was Middle Eastern and had a beard. <laughs> and exactly. maybe was misogynistic but carry on right so latifa and her older sister shamza had wanted to escape dubai forever they yearned for their freedom that no amount of money could make up for her sister tried escaping failed and was locked up latifa too tried escaping she too failed and she too was locked up almost two decades after her first failed attempt latifa was attempting to escape all over again this time with the help of a finnish friend tina and a former french spy erv jobert in what can only be described as a james bond action film they flee to oman get onto a small boat then onto jet skis and finally onto a yacht that has set sail for goa and then as you do you left us hanging for more aran so tell me <laughs> did latifa make it When Chris Olambo dropped the two ladies at the jet skis, Latifa and Tina rowed it out into the deep sea where Nostromo was anchored. The port of Muscat is situated in the Arabian Sea which itself is in the northern part of the Indian Ocean. Anchored a few kilometers past the main port was a 100-foot yacht Nostromo. This was an American registered vessel with an American flag, the star-spangled banner, waving welcome to the fugitives. Well, by now Latifa and Tina were most certainly fugitives. While details are sparse, we can speculate that when Latifa's guards didn't see her leave the bathroom because you remember she left in a disguise, the yep. alarm bells must have gone off in a matter of I guess 30 minutes. Luckily for the women, they were cruising into Oman by that point. But as we pointed out in the last episode, Dubai is a powerful player in the Middle East and in the world as you'll soon find out. But its power in the Middle East certainly stretches into Oman, so even the faintest misstep could be fatal. But as soon as the women were on board Nostromo, the crew of four, Erv Jobert and three Filipinos, sped into international waters. 
now they were on level playing field. International waters have wonky rules of engagement, patrolling and legal jurisdiction. It's not like they were safe, but they were sure as hell safer than they would have been on Middle Eastern sand. The game of cat and mouse had begun. Eight days until Latifa could formally seek asylum and breathe bereft of surveillance, bereft of handcuffs and bereft of repression. Eight days until the shackles imposed by her father could be shedded. But on the flip side, Dubai authorities also had eight days to nab Nostromo. Yes, the boat and its crew had a head start, fine, but when you weigh the value of a head start to power, pride and a freaking billion dollars, the odds aren't as equitable as you might have thought. The Dubai authorities sprung into action. They must find Latifa and they must get her back. But how do they navigate the jurisprudence of international waters was going to be a task, for which they sought help from two other superpowers. India and America. Oh my God. So this clearly goes way beyond just a family dynamic gone wrong and a father, perhaps even deeply misogynistic father, trying to get his daughter back. This is literal international politics at play. Absolutely, Ashwara. And for all of you international law people out there, this case makes for one that is, I I frankly think, understudied because some of the details that I came across that I'm soon going to mention just blew my mind. So... Wait for it. So by this point, Ashwara, Nostromo has been at sea for seven days. In this time, a few key developments occurred. Biggest of them is a major change in plan. So Goa wasn't the crew's first option. They were originally headed to Colombo in Sri Lanka. Latifa was hoping to catch a flight to the US from there. But at some point in their voyage, the crew lost contact with Olambo, which was a cause of concern. Hence, instead of the longer journey to Sri Lanka, Joubert opted for the next best and closest option, Goa. Besides this, Latifa has posted on Instagram explaining her disappearance. She has also been in contact with Radhika Sterling, CEO of Detained in Dubai. This is an NGO that helps victims of wrongful detainment in Dubai. And she was one of the few people whom Latifa entrusted with the knowledge of her plans. There are long text chains between the two women where Latifa is essentially detailing the ordeals of a repressive childhood. While at sea, Latifa also sent an email to a Florida-based lawyer demanding $300 million from her father for damages. Now, this detail requires context. So, documents from the UK High Court proved the veracity of a mail sent from Latifa's email address to a Florida-based lawyer. If this case wasn't convoluted enough, let me add another layer of confusion. I'm not kidding, Ashwara. It's like I'm reading out a James Bond screenplay. Who else is from Florida, Ashwara? The French Secret Service guy, right? Erv Joubert. By the way, hard name to pronounce. But yeah. he does sound too good to be true, you know. Right? And too brave to be innocent. And I know I might be jumping the gun, which I've definitely done in the past. <laughs> but why is their evidence being documented by the UK court? So, to your first point, exactly. I get why Tina is helping Latifa, right? They're good friends. But exactly. what's the deal with Joubert's goodwill? Is there a catch? But firstly, to get to your very pertinent question, why the hell is the United Kingdom so curious? 
So, as you remember, Sheikh Muhammad has many wives, of which his so-called main wife was Princess Haya. In 2019, Ashwarya, Princess Haya also escaped Dubai with her oh my kids God. and filed for divorce in UK. She herself is the daughter of the King of Jordan. This was an extremely high-profile divorce, part of which was detailing Latifa's plight to establish the Sheikh's mistreatment of women. This man is a woman repellent. No woman wants to be in his vicinity, not his daughters, not his wife. It's crazy. And yet he has more wives than I'll have in as many <laughs> lives I live. So, you know, that's the You'll paradox. You'll be happier for it, Aran. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, sure. Um, easier said than done. But <laughs> Princess Haya actually won the divorce settlement and the court ratified much of the evidence which was presented. Included in that evidence, that divorce evidence, was evidence that substantiated Latifa's abuse and imprisonment. That is why I've used the UK documents as part of the research for this episode. But back to shady Mr. 007. Some would argue that Joubert's interest in this plan was purely monetary. He was a spy after all, a profession not necessarily known for kindness and honesty. <laughs> So, keep this point in mind because Sheikh Mohammed's legal counsel is about to use this email against Joubert pretty soon. But to play devil's advocate, Ashwarya, so what if there was an element of financial interest? He is the same man who wrote Escape from Dubai and he was reached out by Latifa, not the other way around. And he was being paid $350,000 for his services. So, if he is engaging in a high-risk mission, I guess there needs to be a high payoff in addition to the court humanitarian goodwill. No, I completely agree. I don't think there's anything wrong with his primary intention being becoming richer, perhaps. Uh, but I hope he's not shady in other ways. And what I mean by that is I hope he's not shady in the sense that he's the one trying to sabotage their plan. And he's not, from whatever I gather, and as you'll come to find out, okay, it, it yeah. doesn't at all. Also, because he has really bad blood with Dubai, right? Like, he escaped sure, yeah. Dubai in the 2000s and is a persona non grata there. So, the, he's not sabotaging it. It's just there is speculation that his interests might be um, superseded by monetary interests, which, yeah, I don't you know, think frankly, frankly, is not the biggest deal in my opinion. No. I, that doesn't really matter and doesn't even speak poorly on him. I think that's fine. Right. So, despite the email and whatever its contents intended, Joubert was sailing Latifa to her freedom at her will. It was all going smoothly until 3rd of March. The journey was nearing its end when Nostromo's radar revealed something unusual. Joubert reports that a surveillance plane was circling the boat. Now, if this was a random flyby, it wouldn't have stood out to him. But this plane seemed fixated on Nostromo's geolocation. The encircling was followed by radio chatter between the plane and patrol boats out in the sea. The plane then pivoted, changed course and headed back to India, where it finally landed in Mumbai. Quote, My radar indicated the ID number of the plane. SAR CG782, which means Search and Rescue Coast Guards number 782. At this point, I was sure the Indian Coast Guards were looking for us. End quote. Keep in mind, this is Joubert's testimony, but if true, 
why would Indian authorities surveil an inconspicuous American yacht in international waters? This question nagged Joubert, but as night fell, nothing happened. Next day, on 4th March, radar activity intensified. This was no longer happenstance. Something was up. Something was wrong. Another plane could be seen circling them. Joubert slowed down Nostromo to a mere five knots, the equivalent of fishing boats. He realized, in addition to the plane, there were three vessels tailing Nostromo. Any doubt that this was a coincidence vanished. The six-manned fugitive yacht was most certainly being followed. They had been discovered. But why the Indian authorities? That too in international waters. Before Jobert or anyone could process these bigger questions facing them, they were faced with a more acute and urgent emergency. Distant planes and tailing vessels are nothing compared to a couple of speedboats manned by six to eight commandos hurtling towards your yacht. Armed with an Israeli Tavor and assault rifle with laser pointers, the men boarded the yacht. Joubert says, quote, their faces were covered by helmets and masks. They ordered me to raise my hands and close my eyes or they would kill me. I had a gun to my face, so I complied. I believed they were going to shoot me. They handcuffed me and beat me up. I felt a blow to my head and was pushed down to the floor in a pool of blood. Then they shoved a rifle into my back. There was no warning, no warrant, no charges, no explanations, no questions, nothing. Just unnecessary, brutal force by thugs. They took over the boat. End quote. In addition to the two speedboats, two of the three vessels tailing Nostromo appeared from the dark. The two Coast Guard's vessels had a huge marking on the side of the hull, according to him. The marking read, Indian Coast Guards. As this is happening, Latifa and Tina are hiding in their deck inside the bathroom, probably praying for this to be a casual smuggling raid. Except no casual smuggling raid has three accompanying warships, not that no. I know of, and no raiding officer would ever say, come on Latifa, let's go home. What? Yes, the men weren't there for packets of heroin. Their resolve was quite apparent, finding Latifa. The encircling airplane turned out to be an electronic warfare aircraft meant to block out communications. Right before Nostromo went AWOL from the radar, Latifa was able to contact Radha Sterling. She sent a voice note, Radha, please help me. There are men outside. The men finally broke into the bathroom. They had Latifa. The cat had won. Other than the alleged Indian commandos, there were Emirati officials as well, evinced by their uniform and the fact that they spoke Arabic. They grabbed Latifa. She begged to be let go. She begged the Indian authorities for asylum. She begged for freedom, a situation all too common for her. Tina testified to the UK High Court, which verified her account. The court document records, quote, smoke grenades or gas together with gunshots soon led to the crew and passengers being subdued. Tina describes being totally terrified and frightened to death. 
At one stage, after Tina had been dragged to the deck with her hands tied behind her back, she saw Latifa lying face down on the floor with her hands similarly bound. Tina says that the Indian servicemen kept shouting, Who is Latifa? over and over again. After some time, an Arabic man was brought on board who identified Latifa. Latifa was shouting that she claimed asylum and that the Indian forces were breaking international law. She was simply ignored. End quote. Ashwara, the final bit of this testimony is especially gutting. So gutting that the presiding judge, Sir Andrew McFarlane, used the next bit of testimony as an independent piece of evidence itself. Quote, You can't get me back alive. Don't take me back. Shoot me here, but don't take me back. End oh my quote. God. That is so, so, so sad. Sadder is what followed. On this small boat, it was, I don't know how many commandos, maybe 12, 15, and the two Emirati, like, lieutenant sergeants, I was fighting. And uh, this guy came with a small uh, pouch, like a camouflage pouch, and uh, he took out the needle and he injected me in my arm, and I was, like, fighting. I was saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And uh, I just assumed it was tranquilizers, but it didn't take any effect on me. But then I was like... Okay, assess your situation, your hands are tied, you have two guys sitting on you, you're on the bottom of a, uh, you know, like a small boat, um, so just calm down, and like there's no fighting at this point, so I just, I just calmed down. I said no, like I'm not gonna voluntarily go. He grabs me and he lifts me up and I'm like kicking and fighting and he's much bigger than me. So I see that his sleeve is rolled up and his arm is exposed. So I said, okay, you have one shot. So I just bite him as hard as I can and shake my head. And uh, he screamed. The same guy tranquilized me again. They put me on a stretcher. And as they were carrying me up the steps of the private jet is when I passed out. Like, I lost consciousness. All I remember was the rocking and seeing the stairs. And then I just passed out. After her failed attempts at freeing herself, Latifa had been sedated. She lay unconscious on the stretcher and was transferred to a private plane. When she woke up, she was back to square one. Years of planning and execution down the drain. Sheikha Latifa was back in Dubai. Home to some, but hell for her. Joubert and Tina were taken in custody to Dubai as well. Nostromo was next spotted at a port in Dubai. Radhika and others entrusted with information chose to release the pre-recorded video of Latifa. The video, released on YouTube and distributed to media outlets, shed light on how poorly Latifa was treated by the royal family. The missing princess of Dubai was headlines around the world. Dubai was in the limelight for all the wrong reasons. But one question remains. How the hell did the Dubai authorities track Nostromo? This was a highly secretive plan that seemed to have been foiled with relative ease. And what the hell were Indian forces doing in international waters? The answers, frankly, came as a shock to me. In the game of cat and mouse, while the mice might have elaborately hatched an escape, Equally cunning was the cat that finally nabbed its prey. 
Ishwarya, how the Dubai police tracked down Latifa was an international undertaking of unbelievable scope. Keep in mind, I will be condensing a lot of facts that came out over several years into one succinct explanation. Also remember that a lot of the reasoning is conjecture or at the very least investigative reporting by individual media outlets like USA Today and the Times of India. So, the moment Latifa's guards realized that it had been too long since Latifa was in the bathroom, they inevitably figured out that she was attempting to escape. One of the first things Dubai authorities did was tap the phones of those closest to Latifa and Tina. Now, when I say tap, scratch out any preconceived notions of tapping a phone that you have. This wasn't your rudimentary run-of-the-mill, oh, let's hack into these young people's phones and listen to their calls. No, no, no. This was part of a program called Pegasus. Do you remember hearing Pegasus files all over the news a few years ago, Ashwarya? Yes, absolutely. It was everywhere. That's all anyone talked about. Right, so the Pegasus files were basically released by this French non-profit Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International and it comprised of 50,000 phone numbers belonging to individuals classified as persons of interest by several governments around the world. This spyware Pegasus was created by an Israeli firm NSO that licensed it for national security and anti-terror activity. As per The Wire, quote, once a phone is hacked by Pegasus, a remote operator is able to extract all information from photos to chat records and call logs. It can also switch on the phone's camera and microphone for eavesdropping. But the bombshell expose revealed how governments were using Pegasus to monitor opposition leaders and gather intel for leverage. An analysis of the leaked database revealed that both Latifa's phone number and Tina's number were added to the database as soon as they left for Oman. Wow. Thankfully, they were cognizant and had left their phones behind. However, the authorities didn't stop there. The aerial photographer Juan Meyer, who recorded Latifa's skydiving shenanigans, his number was added to the list. Later, both Linda Buchiki and Sionot Taylor, who were Latifa's so-called chaperones, were also added to the database. Some reports highlight that Latifa's extensive communication from on board Nostromo might also have aided authorities in tracking her location. But everything I've mentioned up until now, Ishwarya, is domestic jibber-jabber. By which I mean every country, you know, in some way or shape or form, does this to track their specific persona non grata, their specific people of interest. What blows my mind is what follows. Even though Dubai authorities figured out Latifa was on board a yacht called Nostromo, They had no way to track it. For all they knew, it could have been in the Pacific Ocean battling a storm. Nostromo could have been anywhere on Earth. To figure out where it was, Dubai reached out to none other than the FBI. But why the hell would the FBI jeopardize the life of a woman fleeing for asylum? Because she wasn't fleeing for asylum and she had been kidnapped. At least, that is what was told by Dubai to the FBI. Okay, so you expect me to believe that the Dubai government told the FBI that she was kidnapped and they simply believed that she was kidnapped? 
fair 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 so the usa today report which essentially led the investigation in this place explains how the fbi as a gesture of goodwill circumvented all protocols to obtain locational data via nostromo's us based satellite provider kvh now again this is the fbi never take the fbi on face value i agree however the uae and us do have a pretty close relationship and so if uae expressed the urgency of a royal member being kidnapped and the fbi actually believed it i'm not surprised that the fbi helped out but again i'm not taking this at face value i'm merely reporting what us sure. today reports but yeah. according to an anonymous source quote the fbi appeared to have departed from its own guidelines for legal attaches known as legats whose collective mission is to cultivate ties with host countries and advance global law enforcement cooperation rather than seek a subpoena for nostromo's location they circumvented protocols by contacting kvh and pleading a public safety emergency in reality wow. latifa's disappearance was a safety emergency only for her and the risk was her own government her own family now that latifa's real time location was known who could help convert this theoretical jargon into a practical mission q india dubai then reached out to its counterparts in the indian government seeking help to return latifa this interaction wasn't as duplicitous as the fbi one from the reporting it seems like the fbi was tricked but india's partnership with uae was more transactional than one would think Ever since Nostromo was raided on 4th March 2018, Indian military and government has refused to acknowledge any such event, let alone India's participation in it. Either officials declined to comment or they outrightly rebuked the slightest hint at it. A later inquiry by the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention found that Latifa's return was part of a de facto swap. In return What? for cooperating and aiding in finding Latifa, 8 months later, Dubai extradited UK national Christian Michael to Delhi. Christian was an arms dealer embroiled in the Augusta Westland scandal for those who remember, wherein he was accused of paying bribes to the helicopter manufacturer to win a contract worth more than 500 million dollars. FBI Pegasus, prisoner swaps with India. All this because a woman decided to take her life into her own hands. This was the cost of her freedom. Now, back in Dubai, Latifa was moved to the Alawar Jail, Section 13, Cell Number 291. Meanwhile, her friends Jobair and Tina were returned to their respective countries thanks to the pre-recorded video that was making the rounds on the media. This was a PR nightmare for Dubai and they were trying to mitigate whatever little damage they could by at least sending Tina back to Finland and Jobair back to the US they were limiting media coverage to domestic issues rather than diplomatic ones in the interim though when Tina was in custody before authorities let her return they insisted she sign a document which essentially relinquished her rights to criticize Dubai Some of the demands are listed below. Ashwara, can you read these? Yes. So, demand A says I will never speak about the interrogation, which honestly is expected. The second demand says I will never speak anything negative about UAE or its leaders. 
Demand 3 says I will not try to promote or publicize this story to benefit myself or to become famous. Demand 4 says I'm not allowed to contact Latifa ever again and the last demand says I will not talk about what happened when we were captured. And it is so clear from all of these demands that they implicitly acknowledge the fact that there was mm. an attack. So any government can deny the attack as much as they want. The Indian government can, the FBI perhaps can, but these demands by the UAE implicate them in the fact that there was an attack like the last line says i will not talk about what happened when we were captured so clearly exactly. something happened when they were captured otherwise there's no reason to mention that that's kind of crazy this is all crazy it started off as a run of the mill cat and mouse chase honestly and it's turned into this international debacle that frankly we don't know about we don't know that a prisoner swap took place between india and uae i mean these are people being played as pawns yeah yeah latifa was being harassed and tortured all this while she was being pressed to record false video statements accusing jobair of kidnapping among a whole host of different things she refused to cave to her oppressor's demands the consequence was infinite solitary confinement On May 27, 2018, she was moved from this jail to a quasi jail, a villa on the Sheikh's compound that was remodeled to be a prison. Latifa refused to break, and her father refused to stop breaking her. The psychological torture she was subjected to is out of a dystopian Stanley Kubrick film. They left knives in her room to taunt her. They left stopwatches as a reminder of her limited time. There were no visitors. She was left absolutely lonely. Or so they thought. Latifa's ingenuity hadn't ended at an escape plan to Goa. Oh no, far from it. Throughout her planning and escape, Latifa had been in contact with David Hague. Now, David is somebody who I kind of became a fanboy of while researching. He is a man with one hell of a bio. He's the former managing director of the Leeds United Football Club. He was the first openly LGBTQ managing director of an English football club ever. And relevant to our story today, he's a renowned British human rights lawyer. Wow. In okay. fact, Ashwara, he was the first ever British citizen to be a confirmed victim of the Pegasus spyware. That's how he knew he was doing something right. That's how. <laughs> Guess who he suspected? UAE. He had a history of battling UAE's repressive regime, and so helping Latifa was second nature to him. In solitary confinement, Latifa managed to contact David and share her location. She was kept in a villa in the posh locale of Palm Jumeirah. Ashwara, you might have seen Palm Jumeirah in those idyllic Dubai magazine pictures, those expo pictures where this this island that forms Absolutely. the shape of a palm tree. Yeah, She yeah. was kept there, like in the middle of a very touristy destination. But by this point, David was a trusted friend and a confidant. He had been part of several covert rescue operations in the past, so when it was time to get a smartphone to Latifa inside her prison home, he was up to the task. While David hasn't shared the exact details of how his team did it, they managed to sneak a phone with a camera to Latifa. That is so cool. <laughs> her contact with the outside world had finally been re-established, unbeknownst to the Dubai authorities. 
but talking to the outside world is the last thing they wanted. The Sheikh had barely made any comments about the Nostromo incident or his daughter's escape. The royal stance was simple and unequivocal. Nostromo was a rescue mission because Latifa had been kidnapped. She was now safe and happy and didn't want to talk to the media. That was a blatant lie. Latifa was far from happy and even further from safe. But the phone wasn't just a video diary. In David, Latifa found a brother. She found someone to talk to. Imagine being in solitary confinement and finally getting the reprieve of seeing a face that talks back. David details how he used to talk to Latifa for hours, how he incubated chicken eggs so Latifa could have <laughs> virtual pets, just anything and everything to keep her spirits high. That's Because beautiful. the guards used to taunt Latifa that she will never see sunlight again, David used to send her pictures of the sunsets in Cornwall where he was based. All this came at a personal cost to David, who lost three relationships because his partners were suspicious of this anonymous person David communicated with endlessly. But this back and forth text messaging and video calls ceased on 21st July 2020. Hello, are you there? I'm worried for you. These are some of the last WhatsApp texts sent to Latifa which only display a single tick. Soon, David, no. Radhika and Tina realized that the Sheikh's men had found Latifa's phone. Now, she was in big trouble and there was no way of contacting her. Thankfully, David had a backup plan much like the pre-recorded video released after the escape was foiled Latifa had sent four video recordings detailing her plight from the Nostromo attack to her sickening imprisonment The clips you've been hearing are from those very recordings After 6 months of not hearing from Latifa David and team worked together with a consortium of media outlets BBC Daily Mail Sky News and 60 Minutes Australia to simultaneously publish these videos in February of 2021 The goal was to choose a slow news weeks so that the Latifa story would be back into the public foray The hope was that reignited international scrutiny compels Dubai to take some action in the right direction. Apart from a shoddy staged photo shoot with Mary Robinson, former Irish president, Latifa's whereabouts were unknown. The international broadcast of Latifa's videos recorded from a bathroom in her villa turned prison caught eyes. and captured hearts. Why is a princess, the daughter of a billionaire, looking like a hostage dubai's facade of oh the princess is hale and arty came crumbling down shortly after the videos were released the un sent a formal request to dubai asking for genuine evidence of latifa's well-being or else risking punitive action and inquiry dubai continued to flounder in providing proof of life and the pressure kept mounting finally Pictures of Sheikha Latifa appeared. She was spotted at the Dubai Mall in May and the Spanish Airport in June. Finally, Marcus Esabri, a member of the Free Latifa team and cousin of Latifa, finally met her in person. In August 2021, the Free Latifa campaign headed by David Haig himself stated 
Following the meeting between Marcus and Latifa in Iceland, it has been decided that the most appropriate step at this time is to close the Free Latifa campaign. The primary purpose of the Free Latifa campaign was to see Latifa free, leading the life she chooses for herself. We have clearly gone a long way towards achieving that goal over the last three years, with bodies such as the UN now monitoring the current and future well-being of Latifa. So this is one of those episodes, rare, rare episodes that actually end well, and this makes me really happy. Ashwarya, it ends well in one sense. Latifa is alive, and that's great news. I'm quite relieved and happy to learn that. I don't like. But I'll what be you're honest. <laughs> And I'll be honest, you know, the Latifa I saw in that first video is a miss in the newer pictures. Her face just looks different. She looks like a shell of herself. Her smile is missing. The same smile in those skydiving pictures. I can't see that. No. The glitter of hope in her eyes has vanished. So, yes, she is alive and I'm happy for her. But frankly, I am not sure how happy she is and I'm not sure how happy many thousands of women in similar situations like hers are. Perpetrated freedom for public relations stance is one thing, but genuine freedom to choose who to talk to, where to be and who to be, no staged picture could ever capture that. So until next time, stay safe. Stay crazy and stay desi.